the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I mean, like, when you're younger, like, you always hear, like, drugs are bad and drugs are going to ruin your life. But to actually just see that laid out so plainly in front of my face that you can go from, like, a completely normal person partying with everybody over the summer to being, like, a triple murderer by the end of the, by the, end of the year... Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Bannock, sitting across the room from Alexis Linkletter. I just had a little brain fart. And next to Billy Jensen, who again is wearing a fancy shirt. And then we also have the love of my dang life, Jared Monaco with us, but he refuses to plug his microphone into talk. Aww. But he's blushing. <laughs> he's here in spirit and in physical but jared's the love of my life though so that's the see you guys do have a bromance that... we did and we didn't even talk about that on the lady game oh yeah you didn't no, Damn we, didn't, it. we didn't go into that that's a bummer well they do have they do have a very um lovely very cute bromance going on that is uh a little intimidating mm-hmm. for my relationship <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> Do you want to have a bromance with Jared? Yeah, and with Billy, and with you. Oh, well, we do. This is... We have a galmance. We do have a, a galmance? We're, ga- we're galantines. That's not really what that is. Yeah, but... it is. <laughs> is it, Billy? I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> do you know what a galantine I'm, I'm, is? I'm staying out of it now. What's galantine? Galantines is like when you're all single on Valentine's Day, and you just go or out Or just if you love your gal. You're a galantine. You're, you're my galantine. But what I really would like to talk about is today's day, which is National Sea Serpent Day. Billy has never been so excited for something as in, in his entire <laughs> life. Because it's a Slytherin day, and I'm a Slytherin, and I'm the podcast favorite. You know, Bill, I, that's rude. I lo- I'm no longer the villain, okay? I'm the <laughs> underdog. You should encourage this. Slytherins are villains, you, not you are, on the no, podcast. You're starting to be the underdog. and it's actually, I'm the underdog yeah. on the podcast. You're basically Rudy. Aren't underdogs Hufflepuffs? Underdogs are people who are the least favorite, and yeah. that's me. That's, well, that's Who eventually come out and like win. <laughs> so, yeah. Shut up, Billy. So sea, per- sea serpents, <laughs> sea serpents, Jesus. sea serpents, when you, if you look at old maps of the world they would put these sea serpents inside the oceans they're catholic symbols and they were just like don't go with the ocean because this thing will freaking eat you and you'll you'll see some of the the old medieval maps there's there are lobsters but do you know uh-huh. why they're they gigantic do the, lobsters do you know why they do the sea serpents in the oceans no why so maps when they were so new this was like in the 14 and 1500s and it's when countries who were rooted in Catholicism were trying to keep other countries away from certain seas because they didn't want them to make discoveries. Oh, so oh. they said that the sea serpents. Yes. Serpents. Yes. So because these maps that. were circulating through Europe and they were in competition, let's take Spain, for example, with France, with Britain, well, England at the time. Um, so that's why those, I'm literally working on a show about maps and murder right now, which is why I know this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a random fact. No, I just you know. literally know this. Yeah. And it's it was it 
It was uh, the Catholic Church's idea. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's a fun fact. That was weird. And and, and by the way, we did not plan that at all. No, No, Alexis is just that damn smart. Yeah. Dropping knowledge. I am kind of pissed that you didn't highlight beach party day, which is more my speed. (laughs) Well, that's what we did yesterday. And he didn't come to our party. You know what? I I was ready to come. He did FaceTime and offered to come. But I was like hungry and angry. (laughs) Wait, I do want to talk about. She was like, bring a freaking pizza. Uh, No, bring chicken wings. And I was just like. Would have worked for me. It's an hour away. I need to talk about the fact that when we were going to have this party and Billy's like, maybe you'll come. I don't know. Then Billy posted a picture on Instagram of him at the beach looking so beach goth. It was insane. Like you were the epitome of beach goth. Yes. It was amazing. But it it was a later crime. And I didn't didn't realize the the Instagram uh, etiquette etiquette, and I didn't put later gram on there. But, but you yeah. don't have to put later gram. I mean, okay. nobody is. I mean, other than other, us, other than you guys. And you're just like, who the you. hell? Like, what the hell are you guys? What, what the hell are you doing? But yes, I was there. I was wearing my jeans. I was wearing my black T-shirt. That's how I do the beach. <laughs> it's pretty sad, <laughs> but it's very on brand. For it's you. very on brand. So I got to roll with it. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you on december 11th 2010 20-year-old Jerrica Christensen had plans for a quiet night in with her mother. She was supposed to stay home and help her mom, Ellen, bake Christmas cookies as Christmas was fast approaching. But instead, as many 20-year-olds do, she decided to go out with her boyfriend on that Friday night instead. At first, her mom was upset that her daughter kind of bailed on her. But an hour or so later, the two texted and made up, promising to reschedule their girls' night in and talked about a new restaurant that they would both go try out together. They said goodnight to each other right after her mom agreed to pick Jerrica up from her boyfriend's house the following morning. And generally speaking, St. George, Utah was a place unfamiliar to the news of violent crime. A place where a mother would never think a person knocking at the door on a Saturday morning would be delivering to her the worst news of her life. But that was exactly what was about to happen. Today's case may leave you wondering, were these crimes done by willful and deliberate choice or were they caused by fear and compulsion? So we are going to introduce our first degree off the bat. Her name is Sierra Jean, and she is going to set the scene for today's case. And she also knows a number of people involved in this story. St. George is an absolutely beautiful community. It's um, become like a really fast-growing little city. It's located in southern Utah, right where the desert meets the mountains. And so you have like the most beautiful side of like both of these landscapes. Yeah, I, I grew up my entire life here. I've never really ran into a whole lot of problems. I really just noticed that all of this like (laughs) craziness started happening once I turned into an adult. Um, I just think with how quickly the city is is growing, we're getting a lot more uh, violent crime than we did when I was a child. 
So, I mean, like, I could count on both hands, like, the amount of murders that's happened, like, in my lifetime here. And so I think the fact that, like, everyone's so close and it is, like, a, like a smaller city, like, like, not only do you know the victim or do you, or you know someone who knows the victim, you have a lot of people that's really personally affected by a lot of it. It was Saturday, December 12th, which, by the way, is also my dad's birthday, at 11.15 only a few weeks before Christmas. Ellen Hensley had been waiting for a text back from Jerrica, and she had texted her several times that morning and had gotten no response. And as soon as Jerrica's mother, Ellen, saw that the person that was knocking on the door was an officer with a somber look on his face, she just knew. It's every parent's worst nightmare. She started shaking so badly that she could hardly turn the lock to let him in. Once she managed to get the door open, his first words to her were, your daughter Jerrica was murdered last night. And with that, Ellen's life would be changed forever. More than seven hours after Jerrica's body was discovered by police, Ellen had an explanation for her daughter's radio silence. The police were alerted to the scene of the crime after receiving a call from 27-year-old James Fisk at around 3.30 in the morning. He was frantic and screamed, We've been shot. Everyone's been shot. Police ran toward the townhome on Main Street in St. George, Utah to help. As they descend upon the scene, they see a man speeding away in a truck. They stop him, and behind the wheel is Paul Clifford Ashton a 31-year-old man who lived at the townhouse where the shooting had occurred. So who exactly is Paul Ashton? So in 2009, I started dating um, my boyfriend and moved in with him that summer. Um, When I moved in, we had some next-door neighbors that we shared a wall with in this little condo, um, and their names were uh, Zach and Paul, and they lived there with their mother. And they were just, like, the funnest people to party with. Like, me and Zach are still friends to this day. And, of course, we were in our early 20s, so everybody was like, party all the time, party every weekend, party because it's Tuesday. (laughs) And so naturally, like, Paul and Zach were always there. And it was just a really, really tight group of friends, and we remained tight for several years like and Paul was just like the big brother of the group like he was a lot older than we were but it was nice having him around because he could like like we went to him for advice or like anytime we needed to like get some beer it was always Paul that was like yeah let's jump in the truck and leave the state because Utah had like really low 3.2 percent beer and so Paul would always load everybody up in the truck and we would drive down to Mesquite and get the higher percentage of beer and he was like the type of guy who would um, throw a car jack in the back of the truck and like made it a point to say hey if you see anybody on the side of the road we're going to stop and help them out and everybody's like yeah so we're blasting music and we're helping everybody out and we're drinking till we can't see on the weekend but this wholesome country fun couldn't and wouldn't last forever Unfortunately, like, there was a large group of people who had, like, started to dabble in drugs. And I like to call it, like, the yet stage of drug abuse, like, where nobody's lost their jobs yet. 
and like nobody's in poor health yet and like nobody's stealing for their habits yet you know just in that first little cloud bubble like when you first start where you're like oh well there i haven't had any consequences so naturally this is okay so that you get more of your friends to start using that was eventually like what i think took paul and i mean i mean a lot of us down but in relation to this story that took paul down this yet phase thing is something as far as i mean we've gotten a lot of accolades for covering cases that have a drug component because so many true crime shows don't do that. Yep. Um, and I think that Sierra is so poignant in pointing this phase out because people don't get addicted to drugs seeing the residual effects. Absolutely not. Those, yeah. you know, when people's lives are ruined, like that's not why people do drugs. They get yeah. into drugs because there is a yet phase. Yeah. Where you're on cloud nine and you're like with your boyfriend and things well, you're are really in, like, sexy. The, you're and in the honeymoon phase of with drugs. With yeah. drugs. Exactly. And like everything with, is going your way. Everything's amazing. You feel incredible. And like she she said there's no consequences yet. So it's like what yet. could go wrong? Exactly. And I don't think anyone's ever said it in a way that is so understandable absolutely where it's just like oh a yet phase yep smart girl sierra let's get back to the scene of paul's townhome when police are entering what they discover sickens and shocks them it is the bodies of two young women first they observe a woman from what appears to be dead from a shotgun wound She's laying on the ground in the living room, and she was later identified as 27-year-old Brandy Sue Dawn Jardin. The police continue through the scene and walk into a horrifying, bloody situation when they enter the bathroom of the master bedroom in this condo. And who they find is 20-year-old Jerrica. And they could tell immediately that she had not been killed by a gun. And her wounds seemed to be a result of pretty aggressive lacerations. As more police arrive on scene, a guy named Matt McNee, who's actually Brandy's boyfriend, speeds up to the complex. And it turns out that James, prior to calling 911, had actually called Matt to tell him what happened before the police arrived. And once everybody was at the scene of the murders, Matt was left dumbfounded because he actually made his way inside and saw his dead girlfriend, Brandy. And he said, it hit me in the face with a bunch of emotions as he held Brandy's lifeless body in his arms. Then he moved on to find Jerrica. And then he found James, who was bleeding out from the gunshot wound in his shoulder. And he didn't, you know, know Jerrica. Uh, but this has got to be just the most chaotic, upsetting, upsetting scene. The police come, they process the scene, and they speak with James. And he needed to have his gunshot injury treated at the hospital. And he told them what happened. He tells them how everything transpired. Jerrica was his girlfriend, and he was friends with everybody at this townhouse. And James offered to help Brandy move them out of Paul's townhouse. And Jerrica didn't know Brandy, but said she didn't mind helping out. And when they arrived, Paul was there with his friend Brandon. So apparently, at some point during this moving process, 
Brandy and Paul got into an, a heated argument. And it was allegedly after Paul accused Brandy and Matt of taking a bike that was missing. I'm going to interject real quick. So Brandy and Matt in a relationship living at Paul's condo. If that simplifies okay. things. The argument then becomes physical when Brandy threw what has been described as a plastic toolkit at Paul. And that's when Paul pulls out a gun and shoots Brandy. And then he turns the gun towards James and shoots him too. And as soon as James was shot, he stayed still on the ground and he played dead. And then he heard Paul shouting to Brandon to, quote, go get the girl in the back. Now, Paul had a broken leg and had actually been confined to a motorized wheelchair as all of this was playing out. So Brandon listened to his friend, ran down the hallway, kicked in the bathroom door, and started attacking Jerrica. Remember, Jerrica didn't know any of these people. She's just there to help. Yeah. And the 20-year-old was truly at the wrong place at the wrong time, and she just wanted to help. It's like, it's her boyfriend's friends. She probably just went there to, you know, it's like, yeah, of course I'll go oh, help your friends. Yeah, but you oh. want to move, whatever. Okay, so on top of Sierra knowing Paul Ashton, she also knew Jerrica and Brandy. Well, I knew, I knew Jerrica and her boyfriend just on and off and kind of in the same, like, party Party scene, party setting, like I would run into them at weekends. I wouldn't say that they were my friends directly, but they always seemed to be in the same places that I was partying or the same with the same group of people that I was with, which was always a really large group. So um, I actually hadn't known Jerrica very long before the murder happened. Like she was just kind of like in and out of our group of friends when we were partying with one another. Um, she always seemed kind. Brandy, I did know. Um, I knew her a little bit on and off, kind of in the same way that I knew Jerrica. They weren't people that I was particularly close with. Um, I think that Paul gravitated towards that group of friends once our original group of friends, we kind of started to disband when we were all trying to like clean up and get our shit together. So James couldn't tell the police what happened after that. Because as Brandon and Paul shifted their focus to Jerrica, he made his escape. And the police, are, the police are in the midst of piecing together this gruesome crime when they get a call from Brandon Smith, who is the one who ran towards the bathroom to attack Jerrica. He tells the police that he woke up covered in blood and had zero recollection of what happened to him or what he had done in the hours before. Brandon was arrested and the police got him in an interrogation room to see if they could jog his memory. So the police have both of their suspects in custody, but a motive for what happened in this completely senseless killing still hadn't really presented itself yet. The police were conducting interviews with the suspects, with James and with any other witnesses they could try to figure out why the senseless act had occurred. And here's what they could figure out initially. So on that night, for whatever reason, Paul had allegedly viewed the three as a threat and concocted a plan to knock the three of them out and to take them into the desert 
where they could be disposed of. But before this plan could ever take place, Brandy and Paul got into the argument that resulted in that toolbox being thrown at Paul. So in response, Paul shot and killed Brandy, and then James, and then Brandon killed Jerrica. I remember it was right before Christmas, and I think that was another reason why, like, everybody was so floored, because, like, everybody was, like, getting ready for the holidays and Christmas cheer and Christmas shopping, and then I get a call from my mom, and she's like, Sierra Jean, have you seen the news? Did you hear what happened? And I'm like, what? No. And and then, yeah, when I when I found out, I, I just was like, oh, my God, like, right before Christmas, too, like, this this poor mom, like lost her daughters like right before the holidays like that was one of the things that I thought was like particularly sad about it like obviously it's sad all the time when people die but this happened like during Christmas. So imagine being Sierra and hearing the news that a longtime friend committed a crime like this. So when me and my boyfriend decided that like things were getting a little crazy and we wanted to like clean up, we, we actually moved. We moved from the house that we were living in next door to Paul and Zach in to a different area of town. Um, and so I didn't see Paul a ton after that, but no, it was, it was good old Paul and like everything was like perfectly fine and perfectly normal and we were partying and we were laughing and like one of the last nights I saw him he like drank an entire bottle of my wine and so I was whining about him like owing me a bottle of wine and it's and and I know that this is going to sound crazy and like I've disassociated completely from the horrors of it but when I saw that he had been like arrested and arrested for murder I was just like oh my God, this can't be the same person. And then like that, this like completely strange part of me that was like, oh my God, Paul still owes me a bottle of wine and like, I'm never gonna see him again. And like, and like, that's just how crazy it was. Like the person that I knew and the person that did these things are like still to this day, do not compute in my brain to be the same person at all whatsoever. So while the police started pouring over whatever evidence they could, they learned that Paul had actually sent a series of text messages to Brandon, who they considered to be his accomplice in this case. So as a reminder, there's Paul and Brandon, hypothetical suspected perpetrators, and the victims in this case, Brandy and Jerrica, deceased, James, survived the attack. So that's just a reminder. But Basically, they had found these messages between Paul and Brandon, and Paul was asking Brandon for a quote-unquote piece, which means a firearm. And he was asking for this firearm because he wanted to protect himself from people who, who he said had found out that he had been acting as a confidential informant for the Washington County Drug Task Force. And this is a big deal. Why is this a big deal? Because as I think Sierra has mentioned... Their group of friends, it was very large. I mean, this wasn't a tiny group. And everybody did drugs recreationally at the very least. So I could see how he would start to get really worried about his friends maybe turning on him. So this is very interesting. We've never had something like this on our podcast, uh, you know, talking about a confidential informant. Because I don't really know what sort of risks are involved there. Or if there are a lot of like violent acts that occur as a result of people finding out about these things. So it turns out that Paul had sort of turned into a rat 
And this was the source of some of the paranoia he was apparently exhibiting. So Brandon had actually said that he watched as Paul started spiraling about this. And Brandon had actually urged him to contact the police asking for help or, or to relocate himself for a while. And Paul rejected this idea and kept just asking Brandon for a gun for protection. And one of his final texts he said about this, it's my life or theirs, it's my life or theirs. He relented and proceeded to leave the home in Santa Clara, which is a different town in Utah, where he was looking after a coworker's dog and actually went home to his house, retrieved some guns, one for himself, which was a nine millimeter semi-automatic, and one for Paul, which was a 357 Magnum revolver. I mean, it did sound like Paul was seriously in fear or seriously paranoid. So whatever reasoning that Brandon had for succumbing and giving him the gun, we're not really sure, but he did end up doing it. So what's interesting is, you know, this Paul that we're hearing about sounds kind of like a far cry from the one Sierra describes in the beginning of the episode. She's talking about a guy who would help strangers in need with flat tires help his younger friends get beer on a, on a Saturday night. Something must have changed in him. But interestingly, Sierra didn't notice anything. When the news hit, everybody just kind of felt like we had all been punched in the stomach. Like within our friend group, like everybody was shocked. And I feel like when a lot of other bad things happen or people get murdered or something, like everybody sits around and when they're talking about it, they say, Oh man, yeah, we saw that coming and everything makes sense when you look back on it in hindsight. But I, but everybody was sitting around going, oh my God, like I didn't see this coming. It just came completely out of left field. Like it, it, and it messed us all up because like, not only were we really, really sad that this terrible thing happened, but like we, we lost our friend that day too, because like the Paul that we knew and that we loved and that we were all really close with, like that person ceased to exist to us too. So there was, there was a, yeah, I mean, grief for the people that were killed and grief for the fact that that relationship with that person, like, no longer existed. Like, Paul, our friend, is gone, and now we have this Paul the monster. I feel like I'm supposed to feel like I automatically hate this person, but I don't because I don't know this person. It was all anybody could talk about for a while. Like, I feel like every time we checked the news, it was like an update story or an update story or an update story like for different reasons. Like some people were floored that Paul would do this and some people, and you know, and, and some people's main focus was that they were upset with Brandon and some people's main focus was that they were feeling bad for the families. And even though there was like, cause there's a lot of perspectives, there's a lot of people involved. And like, even though everybody had a different reaction to it, like the reaction was strong. Like, what if it had been, like, any of the rest of us that he had called to help him move? Because we were all still cool. Like, that's the thing. Like, we were all still cool. Like, it could have been any one of us at that house that day because we totally would have went over and helped him move his, move his things out. Like, that's what you do with your friends. You help them move. So Brandon eventually confesses to the following. When the argument between Paul and Brandy erupted, Brandon drew out his gun as a way to try to get people to calm down, which is what you do. You try to get people to calm down by pulling out your gun. But once the gun was out, the tensions heightened. He also claimed that he didn't want to hurt Jerrica, but felt that he had to because he was scared of Paul. Because Paul, he had just seen, 
had just shot two people. So Brandon runs down the hallway. He busts down the door to the bathroom where Jericho was hiding. And he starts beating her with a wrench as she cowered and screamed on the floor. And he says that beating Jerrica had proved ineffective. So then he attempts to suffocate her. And then he ultimately cuts her throat with a pocket knife, which causes her to bleed out. And then after that, Brandon slips away from the scene, avoids running into police after the murder. He returns home. He takes time to change out of his bloody clothes. And he doesn't contact police until he heard from a family member that they were looking for him. My big question here, other than the fact that Brandon is fucking potentially crazy, is why was Jerrica killed in so much of a more violent manner and gruesome manner than just gunshots because Brandon had a gun with him? And he went through all of these other things. He tried bludgeoning her, and it didn't work. Then he tried suffocating her, and it didn't work. And then he slit her throat, and then that finally worked. Why did he just not shoot her? And he had the gun the entire time. It's odd. So, yeah, it's my understanding that there were two guns involved. Uh, And I read somewhere residually later, when they were explaining the scene, that, that actually Brandon handed both guns to Paul at some point, but there, there really is no explanation. And that's, what's so interesting about it. Where where this pocket knife came from, I don't know. And when they talk about the suffocation, it was, it was choking with his hands. And I think people, I mean, I don't know. I I think this was like a, a second degree situation. I don't think this was planned. Yeah. Um, I think it looks a lot easier in movies to choke somebody to death. Yeah. No, It, it takes a long time to choke somebody to death. It does, and I don't think two minutes. This guy's never, you know, I don't think he was really up for that. I don't think a pocket knife did it quickly either. Okay, so let's get into this confidential informant stuff. So Paul Ashton had a rather hefty drug and arrest history. So that kind of positioned him to provide pretty good information to police as a confidential informant. Some of his friends and associates started to find out about how he was speaking to the police, and he began to worry that he was in danger as friends continued to distance themselves from him. And when Brandon's sister Katrina was questioned, she even told police that Brandon had been trying to distance himself from Paul, too. He even instructed his sister to tell Paul that he wasn't home whenever he tried to come looking for him. So in the months leading up to the move, while Paul's paranoia had been escalating, he'd also broken a leg and he'd been confined to a motorized wheelchair. And that night when he'd asked Brandon to bring the gun, he claimed that someone was, quote, trying to kill him. So in the days following the murder... There were a few clues that provided any solace to Brandy and Jerrica's family members. And the day after the murder, James Fisk wrote on his Facebook page a status update that kind of lent some information to the idea of a possible motive. And he said, quote, I was shot in the back when my girlfriend was murdered over a missing mountain bike. 
I wish I could take her spot. I would take her spot anytime. I miss her so much. In two days after the murders, Jerrica's mother got to see her body for the first time, which by then had been embalmed post-autopsy and prepared for her funeral. And the autopsy that had been conducted revealed the horrors of Jerrica's final moments. Jerrica's mother at this point said, I could not wrap my brain around this. To me, she was still here. I didn't and I couldn't ID her body. To me, they made a mistake. So for two days of sheer hell, I was waiting for my daughter to walk through that door at any moment and say, hello, mom, recalling how she and Jerrica would jokingly talk to each other in a fake British accent. I waited and waited and waited for that, and it never came. So Jerrica's autopsy revealed that Jerrica sustained numerous bruises to her head, and there were also signs that she had been choked, but her death was the result of these cuts to her throat, or perhaps a single cut that used numerous motions, and she likely died within a few minutes of those initial cuts. Brandon ultimately concluded that he only wanted to knock Jerrica out but he ended up escalating it to murder when Paul continued to scream, get her and do it over and over. So Brandon is playing the card of, uh, I'm, I'm, af- I'm afraid of mm-hmm. this guy. And if I don't kill her, he's going to kill me, which you, you, whenever you have two people at a crime scene, this is a common occurrence that you hear with the horror of these events. More questions about Paul remained and the police started digging up everything they could on him. And they learn that what brought Paul to St. George in the first place was a very violent incident that occurred in 2007. Now, Paul had apparently gotten into an altercation and with this gang and actually been abducted and shot by these gang members seven times. And this is in Ogden, Utah, and he was left for dead on this back road and he was found by passersby. And when he was found, he was wearing no shoes, no shirt, and he was bleeding from wounds to his ear, abdomen, hand, groin, and thighs. So after this incident, he moves to St. George to start a new life. And he gets there, and he gets involved in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he attends a singles ward which is where he actually meets Brandon Smith. So he had these number of drug charges, but he's also involved in this home invasion robbery where a meth lab had been discovered. Then in 2005, he's charged with two counts of felony unlawful sex with a minor, but both counts are eventually dismissed. So I think there is an interesting question in that you know, he was, if this is true, and there are police reports to back it up, if he was in an altercation where he was abducted and shot seven times and left on a road, 
that can be very traumatizing. Absolutely. As can it, I mean, who knows? In a situation like that, your head was probably hit. Maybe there were some medical implications. I don't know. I mean, this sounds, it, it sounds horrifying to be shot that many times. It's documented. You know, he had wounds to his ear, his hand, groin, abdomen, thighs. They might have shot him like, you know. Yeah. Where it hurts, really. This is a question we're going to be asking throughout. I mean, we're dealing with a couple things here. A guy who Sierra perceived to be totally normal, totally sweet, a guy who would help people in need. So if he was normal at that time, are we dealing with someone who's got some residual PTSD happening, some sort of issues relating from this traumatic event he had? Are we dealing with someone with escalating drug use? That's another great question. We don't know. Or are we dealing with a psychopath? A selfish, fucked up psychopath. Very possible. We don't know the answer to this yet. But Sierra, you know, what what she was seeing, um, I'll let her share the insight on that. The way I understand it was um, they were all over there that day and then Paul got, Paul was upset about, about something. They we're all over there helping him move and I think the drugs just exasperated this like completely completely unfounded thing that like people were going to like tell on him to the cops about like the drugs that he had or any number of things that he had i don't know what it was i think he was in a wheelchair at the time too and that that paranoia just got completely out of control and yeah i think he thought he was in danger so paul was doing meth and i think it's clear and safe to say that he was past his yet phase things were happening he was seeing the consequences of these actions in very severe ways. Right, which is why I think like maybe um, the mess he was smoking like caused him to have some sort of paranoia. Um, I guess he felt like he was in danger, like he was in the wheelchair and he felt like people were coming at him or there may have actually been some sort of altercation and that's when he decided to shoot the people. I, I think that that had to have been had to have been what it was because I mean they were all they were all friends before that I mean they were all there helping each other move um I think my my only understanding of the story would be that they went over there decided to move decided to get high and then tensions just spiraled as they got more and more high so the craziest thing about all this is when the police checked the background of 31 year old Brandon Smith they had learned that he had never even seen a single brush with the law until the day that he senselessly stabbed Jerrica to death. And that's fascinating because we look at Paul mm-hmm. with a rap sheet as long as you can see, as far as the eye can see. And Brandon had never even had a driving infraction. Right. And that is kind of one of the big questions here. I mean, it's a secondary question because the first one is what is prompting Paul to act so violently out of nowhere? The second is Brandon has never been in trouble, but he commits an even more violent murder than Paul on the scene. So you could see if he almost had, you couldn't see, but it would make more sense if he had kind of been following the lead. And if that's what he was doing, kind of being the quote unquote fucked up sidekick to somebody else. And what's interesting is, and we didn't include this because it was a resounding no, but when we asked When we asked Sierra if she knew Brandon, she's like, I've never seen this guy. Like, I've never heard of Brandon. And I was friends with Paul and all his friends. So Brandon wasn't that close, at least, you know, for a lot, many, many years with with Paul. 
So you have to kind of wonder, it's like, what kind of influence did Paul have over this guy where he was able to coerce him not only into bringing guns, but into like, I'm sorry, if I had like a newish friend and this shit broke out, I'd be like army crawling out of that house, not involving myself and certainly not listening to somebody if they're saying kill somebody. And that Paul was assuming with a gun, this guy took it into his own hands, which is insane. So both of these men were charged with aggravated murder and aggravated assault because Paul was accused of shooting Brandy and also shooting James. Brandon was accused of killing Jerrica, but he had also raised his weapon to James prior to any of the shots being fired, which constitutes in Utah aggravated assault. You're not allowed to point deadly weapons at people for no reason. So meanwhile, Jerrica's funeral was planned and the services were going to be held December 15th, four days after the murders at the Leeds LDS Second Ward Chapel. And on that day, her mother, Ellen, said that she kept one more promise to her daughter. And I have to say, this really choked me up. So before Jerrica died, she promised Jerrica that she'd help her get a new car. So for her casket, she Mm. picked out a quote-unquote car, a metal casket with chrome that also had wheels on the bottom. Jesus. And at the service, her loved ones talked about her over-the-top personality that her mother said she connected with and that helped them form a special bond. She said, Jerrica was me born 25 years late. We were twins. We were so much alike. And so when she was gone, I didn't know who I was anymore because I couldn't watch myself anymore. She made the exact same mistakes at the exact same ages that I had made. I knew what she thought. I knew what she was always doing. And I think, you know, uh, probably one of the hardest things here is that like, the the events that resulted in Jerrica's murder were, were not a mistake. I mean, my parents would be proud of me just offering to help, yeah. you know, like, yeah. yeah, I don't know these people, but it's Off a Friday. Off to help somebody move. Yeah, which is, nobody wants to help anybody. No, yeah. and I just, I just think that's, and I think Jerrica, I, you know, she was t- only 20, um, but she had had sort of some blips on her radar, like any young kid does when they're growing up. You know, no perfect children are rare and far and few between. And I think this was probably especially difficult because it's like Jerrica was in the midst of like an altruic, altruistic act when this happened. Yeah. It makes it just even more difficult yeah. To, yeah. to swallow. Yeah. And she was doing exactly what her family said she would do. She was helping a total stranger do something that the nor- a normal person wouldn't necessarily do. There's two things that even friends you don't want to do it's moving in airport the airport (laughs) picking you up at the airport and helping you move and you know she was a little bit about jerrica she was a dancer throughout junior high she loved outdoors she loved riding atvs with her sister she had been recently employed as a clerk at the uh, dunn law firm in saint george and her family was super important to her she wanted to go into the medical field as a CNA, she was 
a member of the LDS. She cared very deeply about her religion. And she was frequently heard telling her family that, you know, don't assume things. That's what she would say. People are better on the inside than what they seem on the outside. And Brandy's family was in mourning, too. Jesse Jardin described his sister as a loyal, loving sister who was also a wonderful mother. He said that her death rocked their family and has been especially difficult for his mother and Brandy Jardin's son. Quote, she was a free, fun spirit, one of the best that I've ever known. So as the state prepared for the trials against Brandon and Paul, both of them sat in jail. And this is what I think is really interesting. And this happens all the time in these kind of cases where people are accused of such horrific crimes and they do things like this. So shockingly, or maybe not, six months after his arrest, jail officials uncovered kite communication that Paul had sent to another inmate in which not only did he talk about Brandon and maybe killing him, but he also discussed having James Fisk killed, one of the primary suspects against him. He also talked about having any potential witness against him killed. So I don't know what kite communication is. I'm sure some of our listeners don't know what it is. So can you kind of explain it a little bit? So kite communication, I mean, the exact term can vary across correctional institutions. But kind of what the commonly accepted nomenclature for this is would be, so basically inmates can take a piece of paper and put a note in it. And a kite communication is they take a thread from their uniform and basically poke a hole in the note and they try to throw it under the door of a cell like across the way. And they don't have cells with bars anymore like they used to. Like you have closed metal doors with a little glass window and they have nothing better to do all day. They're just trying to throw this little note under the crack of a door. And if it doesn't make it there, they can pull it back real quick and Mm -hmm. do it before a correctional officer comes. And that's what they call a kite. It's like a little paper thing attached to a string, similarly to a kite. So obviously a correctional officer intercepted one of these messages and this is what they found. Jeez. And uh, so this guy's evil and ability to inflict pain and violence and lack of remorse uh, knows no bounds. And just when you thought this couldn't get any worse. Another body was found. So on March 11, 2011, the body of Bradley Eitner was discovered on the side of the road in Arizona. And Paul admitted that he and a friend were responsible for the killing. And then he walked the cops through the circumstances, and it was clear that the cops, what the cops were dealing with, and this guy was freaking evil. So we said on October 31st, 2010, which was two months before the murders he committed in his home, a drifter and an acquaintance named Bradley had passed out on his couch after a night of partying. Bradley was this 43-year-old guy. Paul then decided that he was going to carry Bradley out to his truck. 
and on the way out the door, Paul intentionally rammed Bradley's head against the door frame at least once. So picture this. This guy passes out on his couch. He's walking him out the door, and he just hits him into the door frame. Then it gets worse. Then he purposefully placed Brand- Bradley in the truck bed, and he slams the tailgate against the man's head at least once. So he's hitting him the door frame once, hitting him uh, in the trunk and the, tail- uh, the tailgate once. And after driving around for a while, this unidentified man with Paul urges him to take Bradley to a hospital or a hel- homeless shelter, just something, just, just get him some help, drive him away, whatever. And at this suggestion, Paul becomes enraged and he says, I'm going to smash his head with a rock and beat his head with a shovel. And that's a quote. Then Paul stops the truck, gets out, finds a rock and strikes Bradley in the head with it. Then Paul drops the other man off at his own home and picks up another guy who is identified in court documents simply as his accomplice. The two of them drive to this secluded location in the Arizona desert, and they take Bradley out, and Bradley's still alive. They take him out of the truck. And then Paul's accomplice, this random accomplice, shoots Bradley twice with a rifle, and... At least one of those shots hits Bradley in the head. And then they take Bradley, they push him off this embankment where he becomes wedged in a rock crevice or crevasse. And I want to just chime in this whole thing with accomplice. I mean, we've already learned that Paul is um, an informant. This is not federal. This was a federal case because this body was found in Arizona. This guy, Bradley. So there's a lot more going on here, and that's why they're not naming these these other suspects. Right. He was an informant. There's people with there's people who have protection here, unfortunately. Uh, so we don't have these names for you. But I definitely looked, but they're just not available. And an autopsy determined that Bradley he died of blunt force trauma to the head and one single gunshot wound. So Paul pled guilty to the kidnapping and murder of Bradley Eitner. Yeah, none of us knew anything about that until we read it in the newspaper. Um, I had no idea. Like I said, I know like after the after the murders happened, nobody had any idea that Paul had this in him. So to hear that this had happened and then to just be smacked in the face with the fact that somebody else had died before that, like while we were seeing him and while we were still hanging out with him and like while he was still our friend like no we had no idea i mean i found out about that at the same time the rest of the world did and it just added to the holy shit i don't know i i don't want to say like oh i guess it goes to show you never really know anybody because that's not true like we knew him like he was our friend he was our older brother like he he was always there for all of us and so to see like the rapid decline, I guess that that drugs can do to a can do to a person when they get a hold of you is it's it's sad and it's scary. Paul was facing the death penalty, so he decided to plead guilty to take execution off the table. 
He was handed two life sentences in less than two days, one for the murder of Bradley and one for the murder of Brandy and the attempted murder of James. Bradley Eitner's sister, Julie Powell, said during Ashton's sentencing hearing that her brother was a homeless man who lived in St. George. She described him as an intelligent man who came from a large family and had a son who struggled with drug addiction. She said he was not a faceless member, not a nameless member of society. Just because someone is homeless doesn't mean their loss will not be felt, and it has left a hole in all of us. So the judge who sentenced Paul Ashton said that this was the first life sentence that he's handed down in 14 years as a judge, but he said that it was appropriate. He said that the fact that Eitner's body was not found until several months after his death was extremely concerning. And he said, quote, that by itself indicates Mr. Ashton's loss of humanity. This this case always like sticks out to me really bad because it just completely rocked me that not only people that you know were killed, but that people that you cared about were actually the ones that that made this happen. I don't know. I've I've heard a lot of a lot of other crime stories where where people look back on it and they go, oh yeah, that guy was a creep. Yep, I worked with him and I totally saw it coming. But this just wasn't. This just wasn't that. There was a big realization. I mean, like when you're younger, like you always hear like drugs are bad and drugs are going to ruin your life. But to actually just see that laid out so plainly in front of my face that you can go from like a completely normal person partying with everybody over the summer to being like a triple murderer by the end of the by the end of the year. I can't say that this was inside of Paul when I knew him. Like I feel like it had to have it had to have been there somewhere and like I, I do think it was, was the drug abuse that brought it out. But it just it makes you really, really wary of of the people around you. Like especially if you know that they, they're using I don't know, I guess I guess coming from a place of somebody who who's done drugs in the in the past, like I always want to be that that person who understands, like, hey, this is really hard for you, and like these are the tools I use to get better myself. But it kind of always gives you hesitation because you don't know if this completely normal person one day is gonna is gonna flip out or that they're gonna have a bad reaction one day when they're you know moving out with all their friends. Like I don't know, it just. The unpredictability of it is what's really hard for me to swallow because I didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. So Paul's defense attorney squarely blamed Paul's dark path of violence on the abduction and shooting attack that he suffered at the hands of those gang members in 2007. He claimed that the experience significantly altered Paul's life. Quote, he is not a monster. He has taken responsibility for the things he has done in this case. He was traumatically and dramatically changed when he was almost killed. Now, listen, I know everybody, at least in this room and listening, has a lot of problems with this. I do. But forget that. That's that's very obvious. Calling Paul a monster is simple. But what about Brandon? And Paul pled guilty, but Brandon was going to trial. And that's what people were going to be arguing. Because ultimately, his attack on Jericho is worse than anything else that happened. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what's so interesting is that like Paul had this crazy track record of 
X, Y, Z. Brandon had never even gotten a speeding ticket and he stabs a 20 year old to death. He didn't know, you know, so I think that is one of the most interesting parts of this case. So Brandon's trial and the arguments that we're dealing with actually in the situation are that Brandon was insisting that he was actually trying to distance himself from Paul in the weeks and months leading up to the incident. And that the only reason Jerrica had been killed at all is because he was scared Paul would kill him. However, the prosecution argued if Brandon really wanted to avoid Paul Ashton so badly, he could have simply said no. But instead, he chose to drive home, retrieve two weapons, two guns to bring over to Paul's house. And May claimed it was because he knew he was going to be partaking in a violent encounter. The police even found texts between Brandon and Paul that indicated that Brandon was a willing participant in the plan. And Brandon also said during the trial that Paul started suggesting ways that they could get rid of all three of them. He also claimed that Paul suggested knocking them out and dropping them off in the desert. As we said earlier, and I bring this up again because we learned this fact before we knew about what happened to Bradley. And this thing with Bradley happened two months before this double homicide. So I think what happened was that Paul realized he had gotten away with that Mm. and had kind of been like, hey, we could just kill them and drop them off in the desert, probably throw them in the same place we had thrown Bradley. You know, I thought that was actually one thing on um, on Brandon's side. Yeah. Because saying that like, hey, he wanted to do this thing when Brandon presumably didn't know about this thing that happened with Bradley. I thought that was rather interesting because this was part of this of this guy's logic now that okay if i have a problem i know how to deal with it and he's going to play into that what brandon's lawyers were arguing is the only reason these people weren't driven out to the desert and killed was because of brandon because he didn't go along with this plan so jerica's mom said of brandon that he attacked her quote with the intent to eliminate any witnesses to the shooting he had the chance to just walk out of the apartment and leave her daughter alone but he didn't she said he could have been the hero that night and brandon was convicted in jerica's murder and got a sentence of 15 years to life i don't know i guess when situations go bad like people can turn into heroes or they can turn into monsters and you just don't know what you're gonna what you're gonna get out of a situation and today jerica's mom talks about the day that she learned of her daughter's death She says, 15 after 11 is embedded in my brain. Every Saturday since then, 15 minutes after 11 in the morning, I look at my watch and I think about the officer's words. I used to love Saturdays, and for the very longest time, I absolutely dreaded going to bed Friday nights because I had so much fear of Saturday, reliving it again. It is so fucking sad. You know, I know this sounds really bad, guys, but it it kind of gets worse because Jerrica was not actually the first child that Ellen had lost. She had lost her three-year-old son who was killed in a car accident over a decade before Jerrica's murder. But it does bring her solace that Blair Colt Christensen and Jerrica Christensen are laid to rest next to each other in the Naraville Cemetery 
and Jerka's tombstone is decorated with the words, Love, Live, Laugh, Dance. So what do we learn today? Well, at least what I learned today, I think with every court case, we look at motive as such an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And I think in a case like this, I think it's such a prime example of the fact that you're not always going to get these answers as to why. Why? What was the catalyst? Is this person depraved beforehand? Is this person X, Y, Z? I don't think we can always rely on that. But what is not disputable is the evidence. I mean, the police arrived as he was speeding from the scene. There was no doubt. Yeah. But what there was doubt about was the motive. And I think that is uh, just indicative of the fact that it's only one of the three main things law enforcement look at. And this is why. Because we don't know. There are a lot of reasons he could have done something so depraved and awful. Meaning motive means opportunity. Exactly. The three main things, yeah. Exactly. I think also something you learn, it's like you just never know. Like these people are in such the wrong place at the wrong time and, you know, got met with like the most awful fate imaginable with people that some of them didn't even know. And while that is a very, very small percentage of what can happen, it's like you still just never know. It does happen. And I think that is so correct, Jack. It's like Jerrica was totally innocent. And that's why we gave her a ton of information at the top and the bottom of this episode. She was the only one who didn't know a single person in this. She was there for an altruistic reason. And I think uh, this episode should really honor her. Yeah. All right. Well, a big thank you to our first degree connection this week, Sierra Jean. She was a wonderful interview and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. If you guys want to grab some first degree merch, go to our store. It is on our website link in the store page or go to our Instagram bio. You can go grab all the true crime related merch that your heart could ever desire. And please follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jansen. 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 Jansen with a twang. Billy Jansen at Jack Vanek. And please write us if you have a connection to a murder or other stranger than fiction crime at hello at the first degree podcast dot com. And until next week. Only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy Serpent Sea Day. Happy (laughs) Devil's Lettuce Day. Oh my god.